Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So thank you guys all for joining me this this Tuesday morning. Um, There's a ton to get to today. There's a ton of different things I want to talk about, but I I do want to start off with kind of talking about uh, the main topic of this this live stream, the title of this live stream. Uh, what role are silver and gold cast as? Now, that that is, I mean that in two different ways. What, what role are they cast in? First of all, uh, when it comes to an individual's own investment portfolio, and, and maybe I should wait up here because you know, unlike in past live streams, sometimes these morning ones, it takes a while for people to trickle in because you guys aren't just sitting at your computer. Well, maybe some of you guys are just sitting at your computers at work, but um, thank you for joining me. Those of you that are, that are slowly coming in and, and uh, as always, if there's any questions you guys have, uh, leave them leave them in the chat. Um, again, there's a ton to talk about today in terms of, of the uh, some new economic news, some new data that I want to go over and also uh, plenty of, of precious metals news and, and discussion from you guys. But again, as I was saying, what role are they cast as? You know, that can go in a couple of different directions. Um, but I, uh, the direction I want to start off with is, is what role do they play in your own individual portfolio? And you guys can, uh, uh, USA, the entire USA is watching. Thank you for your uh, com- comment and thank you for uh, tuning in. What role do they play in your own investment uh, portfolio? Or, you know, some people just don't like calling them an investment period. Um, this is something I've kind of come around on over time. Uh, now, initially, like so many others, I, I got the whole, yeah, silver and gold are a hedge type of thing. Uh, they protect you against inflation. Uh, they're they're, they're going to hold their value over a long period of time. That makes sense. That made perfect sense to me from the beginning. But over time, I began to realize just how important they are in that role versus what some people buy into them because of, and that's, their their speculative role and don't get me wrong you know when i i i it, it still kind of irks me to this day when people say silver and gold aren't an investment it's like well yeah they are they are i mean think about it like if you're buying an asset and it's going to increase in value over time it's an investment right now that doesn't mean that can be its primary role for you it doesn't mean that it all enters into the equation but it doesn't change the fact that it still you know meets a requirement, the technical requirement for an investment. Now, with that being said, I get it. It doesn't have a yield like something like a bond or or a CD or something like that, or even a, just a savings account. It doesn't earn you a dividend like a stock might, um, but there are still some serious uh, advantages to it. Um, and and I guess the reason I'm discussing this is because of an upcoming video that you guys will probably catch. I don't know next week. Uh, a week from now, 10 days from now, something like that, talking about silver and gold versus cash. And so basically what I'm going to do in that video is, is is compare silver and gold over the years in terms of their return versus cash and things that you may consider cash equivalents. Okay, so you have cold hard cash, like physical 
paper cash that you could keep in your own physical possession, but then you have bank accounts, you have uh, things like CDs, you have money market accounts, yeah, et cetera, that, that can yield you something. And how does silver and gold compare to those over the years? And, and as I've been thinking more about this, you know, I realized that one of the big advantages of silver and gold you know, to to an investor, to somebody that's not using them solely as a savings account, but also as as something that that they eventually will have to spend, um, is it, it, twofold. Now, first of all, they're they're inflation proof. Doesn't mean they're never going to go down, and and that they're always going to keep up perfectly with inflation. But as a whole, they they do keep pace with inflation. And you know, we have evidence in the in the past in past hyperinflationary events that they actually outpace inflation. Uh, in in uh, you know said currency, now that's great. I mean, it's it's a savings account that you can hold on to. It's uh, and and yet not have to worry about it losing a significant amount of value. I mean, and the other thing is you also keep it in your physical possession. I mean, you can uh, you you can put your money in a bank account. You can you know Robinhood. They they came out recently made big news with that they have a savings. Of course, Robinhood is that big uh, stock trade the free stock trading app. Um, and they have all sorts of features. And one of their new ones was a 3% savings account, which sounds great. And, and who knows, maybe it's legit. It, I don't know. Um, but the thing with it is, is that it's not in your physical possession. And just because 3% sounds great. I mean, you, you got to understand that as great as 3% sounds on cash, you're probably keeping pace with inflation. If that, I mean, we, I, I, I've, I've said for a long time now that, that, I, I tend to think inflation numbers are, are understated. And, and so, you know, even if inflation is 3%, then you're just keeping pace with it at 3%. And that's in a relatively high interest rate environment compared to where we've been for most of the last 10 years. So that 3% very well could change, just like whatever you're yielding on your current, you know, high yield savings account or your, your current just standard savings or checking account. That's probably going to go down if the Fed, uh, or maybe I should say when the Fed lowers their interest rates. And so, um, with 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 you know cash, even cash that's earning a yield, you got to understand that's still losing purchasing power. And, and there was always a threat that you're going to lose a lot of purchasing power through through maybe a, a high inflation environment, like back in like the '70s, you know, eight percent, ten percent, some sort of stagflationary environment, or much much more, right? And in more of a hyperinflationary environment. Whereas silver and gold, they're gonna they're gonna hold that value, and so a you can you can use it as a savings to to buy stuff that you need, um, uh, maybe pay bills in the future, whatever it is to keep your yourself afloat in 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 rough uh, economic seas, both personal and and you know in national or international times. But also for those of you guys, for those of you guys that are investors, you can use silver and gold as uh, basically the way you'd use cash, right? Investors use cash as a, a way to stay out of, of exposure to, to all these different markets, whether it's stocks, bonds, et cetera. And they also use it as, you know, what some people might refer to as dry powder, meaning uh, you put a lot of cash in the sidelines when the stock market is is looking like it was maybe back in October or, or January of 2018. You know, when it's really high, you move into cash, you have dry powder. And then when it drops significantly, and I don't know if that was a significant enough drop for, for somebody like me to move into it, but I mean, of course, none of this is investment advice, just my own, my own, uh, I guess, take on this is, uh, 
But when it does drop enough, you have that dry powder and move into the market. Well, of course, that dry powder can lose value. I mean, what if what if uh, you're in cash? Okay, let's say you go into cash right now. Dow Jones is what, 23,000 range or something like that. And, and you're hoping to have some dry powder, or at least you put some into cash, and you're hoping to have that dry powder available to put into some asset when they drop significantly. Well, what if you know, over the next six months, over the next year, the dollar index drops from where it is right now, again, 96, 97 range, I don't have the number in front of me, uh, down to, let's say, 90 or, or 85. There's a big pivot from the Fed. Um, you got to understand that you're going to be able to buy less with that. right? That means a lot of other assets are probably going to go up quite a bit whether we're talking precious metals, whether we're talking uh, uh, other types of commodities, even stocks, they may have not gone up, but but you got to understand that you would have done better during that time had you had it parked in uh, something like silver and gold, which I wouldn't call a cash equivalent, but something that is is uh, not going to fall prey to that as well. Right? You can use it as some sort of a tri powder. So so that's one thing I, was, I, was, I kind of want to talk about, and this is going to go much deeper into... Um, this video I was talking talking about discussing uh, uh, silver and gold versus cash and cash equivalents. Um, I want to make this a video that's perfect for you guys because I know a lot of when I say you guys, I'm talking about a lot of my viewers, which are just people you know at their job right now or sitting at home, whatever. Nothing, uh, no no technical experience, no uh, formal education on this. You, your job likely is not related to finance or anything like that. Maybe it is. Maybe some of you guys. Um, but I also want to make it make it um, something that that may be more sophisticated. <laughs> I feel like I should be saying that like with a, a glass of like swirling a glass of wine in my hand, but more sophisticated investors, right? Uh, and by that, I just mean more detailed information, right? Going above and beyond with this information. So um, the the other thing I want to talk about: what role are they cast as? Uh, what role are they cast as in? this eventual economic downturn. By the way, for those of you guys that are in the chart, if you guys have questions, anything like that, eventually I will get to them. I just want to get uh, to, to this point right here. What, what role are they cast as in the next um, economic downturn uh, and, and eventual uh, currency crises that, that will hit all over the world? What role are they cast as? And this is a really interesting question, um, especially for gold, as right now, you know, I had Rory from the Daily Coin on yesterday. If you guys didn't catch that interview, I think you guys would enjoy it immensely. We talked about Dow to gold ratio, silver, uh, gold to silver ratio, but but so many other things as well. He's he's a, a great guy, um, so so definitely check that out. Uh, but but not during this live stream, of course. But you know, one of the things we talked about is is why is that ratio, gold to silver ratio, so high? And and he was talking about how, you know with it being the way that it is where, where silver is not held in significant levels by governments and central banks. And we talked about some evidence that, that Russia is stacking silver. And of course, some mints around the world hold silver on hand to, you know, for minting purposes, but as a whole gold is, is hoarded by central banks and governments. Silver, not so much a case anymore, right? Uh, Post 64, uh, most countries eventually got rid of their silver and, and, as of the early 2000s, they pretty much had besides what I just discussed there. And so he referred to gold as a tier one asset, right? A, a, a reserve by these, these central banks. A lot of central banks carry reserves. Governments carry reserves, right? And so you have countries like China, which has been in the news recently for their gold stacking, which they've officially returned to, but we kind of know they've been doing it anyways behind the scenes. Uh, they, they're basically stacking all this gold as, as a reserve, 
Uh, but but you do have to wonder, okay, so the People's Bank of China for a very long time, they had uh, a, a fair amount of gold in their their reserves, but it never was really increasing, or I shouldn't say never, but it didn't increase for a very long time. And yet, if that's their reserve, then what is all the other gold that they uh have been stacking, I guess, over time. Because there's a lot of evidence that that China, uh, uh, it mines a lot of gold and they import a lot of gold and they're not using it all in industry and it's not being declared on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet. So where's all that gold going? And so many people have surmised, I think correctly, that it's going to various sovereign wealth funds, wealthy investors, uh, state-run enterprises, etc., and so long story short, they have something like, you know, the estimates are, are you know, 20,000 tons. And that's, um, you know, if I can put that in comparison to around the world, let's see, I'll Google here, uh, largest gold reserves. You know, I want to put this in comparison. Uh, this is from July 5th uh, from Forbes, July 5th, 2018. Um, so number one, I'm assuming is, uh, let's see here. The United States, and of course, I need to. I want to quantify this um, for you guys. Okay, the the official number from the United States: eight thousand one hundred thirty-three point five tons. Okay, and and again, I just said twenty thousand tons that China's potentially stacking. Germany number two is three thousand something. Um, let's see here, Italy. I don't know if they put something like the IMF on here. You got to wonder if it's not part of their, I guess, currency reserves or or in their central bank's reserves, what role do, do they intend it to play in the future? Now, this is not me proposing China's move into a gold-backed currency or anything like that. Now, we can have that discussion, sure, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about what type of a role is it going to play, right? So imagine we have a scenario and say in 2019, 2020, where, where we see a serious slowdown of um, uh, quite a few economies. I think, I think we'd see the slowdown in, in China. We'd see it then extend also because it's in China to, to um, you know, Japan's going to feel it. Korea, South Korea is going to feel it. Well, North Korea as well, Southeast Asia. Um, and, and then of course, uh, Australia, Canada, and that's kind of that part of it. And then of course you'd have a slowdown in the United States and the EU and, you know, basically some sort of a global recession, maybe not a universal recession, but a global one. Sure. For, for much of the major world economies. Uh, and so in that situation you have, uh, where, where, where China is, is, uh, basically trying to keep their system from falling apart. And so one of the tools that they have to do that is to, uh, weaken their currency, you know, despite what what uh, Trump may or may not want, and, and whatever the trade war looks like right then, and the trade deficit, et cetera, they're they're going to have to probably weaken their currency given the massive amount of debt that they have at at the corporate level in China. It's a massive bubble, and that's one of the tools they can use to uh, loosen or, or lighten that load of that debt is to weaken their own currency. So let's say the yuan breaks through the seven to one threshold and it just keeps going. It's say it goes to you know, eight to one, nine to one. Right. Um, and eventually they, they, they stop the slide. Let's say they stop it at eight to one, eight and a half to one. I, I don't know. These are all the ballpark numbers. This is just a scenario. Okay. And eventually, you know, 
you see massive amounts of defaults in their economy. Their economy as a whole slows down. Maybe even, you know, eventually dips into a, a recession, which would be huge for China, considering they have had, you know, six something percent growth. That's a huge swing in, in GDP growth. They move into a recession. They've hit their Minsky moment. There's there's civil unrest. And this is on top of a massive amount of, of economic weakness around the world. Okay. So what role is the gold going to play in that situation, right? And that's not even probably a worst case scenario for China, but what role is it going to play? Is it just going to be a, a, a hedge? Is it just going to be a, a, uh, a reserve asset? Because that is a lot of, of, of gold on their, their balance sheet. You know, I tend to think that it's, it's got to be for something else. And again, I'm not saying that they're going to use it to back a currency. But it would make sense. You know, we always, so many people are always talking about how the East, uh, Russia, China, et cetera, how they like their their hard assets and, and us uh, Westerners like our paper assets. Um, well, what are they, you know, is is that part of their their plan that they want us to 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 buy their cheap goods? They want us to to uh, continue to buy paper assets and, and build a service-based economy, consumption-based, debt-based economy. Not to say that that's not also true to some extent for China, but we're going to put all of our wealth that we accumulate into um, high-rise housing, right? Or into paper wealth or into um, uh, uh, services or, or vacations or whatever it is. Um, not good long-term uh, uh, stores of wealth, whereas China instead chooses to stack, you know, 20,000 plus tons of gold and, and Russia does something similar. Where does that leave them in some sort of a reset scenario? I think it leaves them at a huge advantage. You know, if, if paper assets uh, more or less, a lot of them go to zero or, or devalued by 90%, right? Um, that's going to leave them at a huge advantage because I don't think you can just devalue something like gold by 90%. Uh, so just food for thought. What role are they going to play in the next uh, crash? And then, of course, there's some people talking about, are we going to have eventually a push for a gold or silver-backed currency? And again, some people say it's going to come from the East. Other people are hoping that it's going to come from the United States, that eventually people are going to realize that like this inflation is not sustainable, right? This, this, this system is not sustainable. And you're going to see, whether it's the United States or some small European country, that that uh, that is 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 sick of the ecb or sick of the eu policies and, and they come out and they want to start their own currency or back their their own currency with gold you know it's it's hard to say you know if if something like that is possible but um i can say two things that first of all if the country does do it and it's not one of the big ones um I, i'm not confident in their ability to to maintain that long term i think they're going to have a target on the back right um now, if, if China or Russia were to somehow come out and do that. Um, now, I mean, it, again, their gold reserves just I don't think are large enough. They need to significantly revalue gold or or they need to reissue some sort of a new currency and some sort of a collapse or something like that. Okay, but if they did, I mean, uh, uh, I think the United States would, would have a, uh, would obviously take issue with that, but there'd be little we could do. Um, but I think if it was something like, some small, you know, Middle Eastern state that came out and did it, or some small Central European or Eastern European state that came out and backed their currency by gold. 
uh, I, I think they'd have a target on their back, right? By, by much of, of the fiat countries of the world. Um, because, you know, once you have a non-fiat currency uh, out there, it, it it makes a lot of the other currencies look much, much worse. And, and uh, I don't know, it, it's a perception game. We always talk about this with fiat. We talk about with precious metals, how if you can keep people's perception that fiat is worth something, that means a lot. And if you can keep... Uh, people's perception uh, in the direction of silver and gold will never perform well as an asset, that they're, they're always just going to be a loser in terms of investment. It means a lot. So I guess that's my thoughts on what role are they cast as? I I, I got to think that, especially for the East, for Russia, for China, it's more than just a reserve asset. But I guess that remains to be seen. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's see if there's any questions in the chat today. There's a couple other things I want to get to here in a second. Hello to USA, Pablo Pina, Thomas Fithian from Central Pennsylvania, Joe Azatiana, Glenn Carbon, uh, Silver Honda, Fernando uh, Perales, and on and on again. Anand Naidu. Uh, I see Chris. Uh, Sizpanski, I don't know. What do you think about Litecoin? It's been on a tear. Um, I guess in, in terms of cryptos, I, I have said for a long time now that I think a lot of the altcoins, the non-Bitcoin coins, are, are going to do better than Bitcoin in the long term. But I, I don't know. It's um, the I guess the Litecoin to Bitcoin ratio certainly could make big moves in the direction of Litecoin. But I'm not convinced that the the whole bear market for cryptos as a whole is over. But if it is, I, I would I would think that in the next big move up or the next, it doesn't have to be a big move up. We're not talking Bitcoin 20,000 or something like that. But let's say they moved up to 8,000 or something like that. I would think that that some of the altcoins might outperform Bitcoin in that move up. Uh, let's see here. Dusty Road says, investment savings hedge. I like the savings strategy. However, I will use it to pay bills from time to time. Talking about gold silver gold silver could be getting ready to have a cup and handle event giving us a great time to buy i guess i'd have to open up a chart for that but uh yeah another thing somebody's been talking about is a head and shoulders pattern in the dollar index um the dollar index is interesting i i, I uh it, it's just interesting because so many Sorry, uh, uh, a viewer down here backing a currency with gold didn't go well for Gaddafi. And that's kind of what I'm saying. Not, not to say that everything that happened in Libya was because of the gold or something like that. No, I think there's a lot of other situations. That, there's a lot of other factors at play. Not, no, I think the, 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 the end result, certainly not desirable. How it was went about, not desirable. It, it was, I mean, it. What, what what do you end up with? You ended up with a, a NATO-assisted, I guess, uh, rebellion in, in, in Libya, and it's you know it's a it, it's another failed uh, attempt to to remove a regime. They they were successful in removing the regime, but look at like what Libya looks like now. Now is it better than than Libya under Gaddafi? I'll let you guys decide that, but it's certainly not ideal. Uh, Doing something like that just tends to to uh, to not work out, especially when you have so many different factions, and and also that that a lot of countries, you know, unsurprisingly, aren't all that, I guess, uh, uh, 
favorable towards a foreign aggressor, a foreign occupier, a foreign force that's supporting whatever, you know, movement that is that is trying to carry out the rebellion. You can see it time and time again, whether it's Vietnam or, or various places in the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, a lot of times that doesn't do a lot for their legitimacy, I guess, for their for their populate uh, for their popularity within their own, you know, among their own people. Um, anyways, uh, I forget exactly what I was saying here. Talking about, oh, talking about the U.S. dollar. Uh, I, I, I tend to think that, that, I don't know. I talked about this in a recent video that there's a chance that, you know, and going into the next crash, the next stock market crash, economic crash, whatever, that, that you're going to have a big move up in the dollar. That's what a lot of people tend to hold. They, They tend to hold that belief because that's what we had in 2008. Um, but for a while now, people have been expecting that as well, regardless of a crash, they've been expecting a big move up in the dollar for, for a variety of reasons, whether it's the fed, whether it's, it's, uh, uh, other currencies just being weak in general, or people have been talking about for a while now, including myself. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to wonder if the dollar is just finding too much resistance, that maybe the hopes of, of the dollar moving up to 98, the DXY, the 98 or above 100 or anything like that. Uh, if maybe those 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 chances are pretty slim at this point, you know, what if we go into another recession, another broader market crash, liquidity problem, um, and you just don't have that safe haven move to, to metals, right? Or sorry, to, to, to the dollar, right? Just like you might not have a safe haven move to bonds, right? When, when you have... In a lot of markets, when you have everybody assuming that if A and B happen, that absolutely C will be the outcome, a lot of times that might not be the outcome, right? Especially when everybody thinks that that's how it's going to play out, right? Um, and so I think, you know, we, we have to be careful with these types of assumptions. We got to understand that that the investment world is very dynamic, that things are always changing, um, and that uh, paradigms can can shift and they can entirely flip, Right. For for example, the whole idea of bonds being a safe haven asset, that when stocks move down, yields move down because bond prices are going up. People are moving to bonds. Well, there's going to be a day where that, that no longer is the case, where they're not going to catch, catch that same safe haven bid because they're not going to be a safe haven, or at least they're not going to be viewed as that. I don't see them as that in the first place, you know, at least long term. Um and so I think the same has to be true for the dollar. Eventually, the dollar is just not going to catch that same bit. It's going to go to somewhere else. I have metals, uh, it could go to bonds or something, but it's just not going to go to to uh, uh, the dollar, I don't think. And and so, um, so many people have been bullish on the dollar for a, a while now, and I get it. I have been for for quite a while new now as well. Uh, I expected silver and gold to go much much lower towards the end of two thousand eighteen the dollar to go much, much higher. Yet we haven't seen it. Now, maybe we will this year. Maybe this is the year for the dollar to move up significantly again, which by the way, I mean, a dollar moving up is sure bearish for metals, but it's also very bearish for a lot of other things, including, you know, emerging markets and for, um, yeah, I think even the U.S. stock market, honestly, a weaker dollar is going to be good for the U.S. stock market going forward. But but I, I, there's a lot of people making assumptions, just kind of operating on a very fixed like it's got to move up eventually. And then oftentimes not questioning that maybe it just won't, right? Maybe we're just 
totally wrong on this. And this is not me, me being eternally dollar, dollar bearish or talking about how the dollar is always going to collapse or anything. This is just me saying that over the next six to 12 months, what if the dollar does the opposite of what so many uh, people are, are expecting? Even in, even people that would be, be I guess, favorable to, to uh, metals or favorable to, to uh, a more realistic point of view that not, not the CNBC pundits, but, but the people that, that, often speak out against things like Fed policy and whatnot. Um, let's see here. Yankee Stacking, nice to see you tuning in this morning. Um, I wanted to see if there's any other questions here. And then I have a couple other topics I want to move on to. Let's see here. All right. Um, Thinker suggests buying real silver. I would agree. That's absolutely a good choice. Yankee Stack, an interesting to see how precious metals have done against foreign currencies recently. Yeah, I did a video on that last week. You know, it was uh, especially gold versus silver, and 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 it really puts in perspective how how high that ratio is right now. But uh. I talked about Australia, the Australian dollar. Gold was at an all-time high last week. I don't know where it's at right now, but pretty darn close, right? And even if you look at uh, Canadian dollar, similar story. I don't think it was all-time high, but but high historically. Um, and obviously, the same is true for a lot of emerging market currencies after the year they had in 2018. Uh, the euro has been somewhat more stable, but like the pound still pretty high. And so it's a very different story than where we're at right now. I mean, gold, uh, what's the all time high for gold, you know, 1800 or, or higher. Um, but right now we're, we're long story short, we're still, you know, well short of that. I'll bring up a chart here to, to get the exact number. We're well short of that. Whereas in some other currencies, that's just not necessarily the case They're they're actually pretty darn close. So I think that tells us uh, a, yeah, let's see here. All-time high technically was, uh, you know, goldprice.org has it up around 1889, 1900. Um, anyways, we're, we're not even up to 1300 yet. Um, I think A, that, that drives home the point of just how strong the dollar is. And B, when, when you look at silver in these currencies, they're nowhere near their all-time high. And so I think that drives home the point of just how low the ratio is um, historically. Uh, let's see here. Hello to uh, David Carlisle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you guys all for tuning in to this morning. Um, let's see, I got 60-some viewers, which is not bad for a, for a Tuesday morning. I think I hit a new, let's see here. My peak was 70, it looks like, today. Uh, 72. Um, I hit a, uh, I think, a new all-time high last Tuesday on, on New Year's Eve. And I think I got used to, to people being out of work, or not out of work, but off of work. Uh, on holidays or on break or whatever to tune in. Um, and it's a little bit lower this morning, but thanks you guys. Anyway, 60 is still, you know, how many of you guys get the the opportunity to, to, to talk to 60 people at once? Um, I'm guessing not too many. And that's not, that's not me, me bragging on myself or anything. That's, that's me uh, feeling a little bit humbled by, by being able to talk to so many people and, and, and I guess uh, listen to your, your thoughts on this as well, but, but just, the fact that somebody can listen to somebody like me ramble for, for an hour plus is amazes me to this day. Um, anyways, I, I want to show you a couple articles here. So I'll, uh, 
put up my screen share here. If you guys are driving and listening, please don't take your eyes off the road. Uh, let's see, application window, share. All right, so I saw this article, two two really interesting articles here, but I want to start off this, this, with this one from Zero Hedge. Shocking German industrial production plunge stokes recession fear in Europe's largest economy. German industrial activity just plunged the most since 2009. I mean, this chart really speaks for itself of just how how weak uh, this this growth is right now. I mean, to put this in perspective, I mean, this is back in, in 2012, 2013. This was a little bit after the euro crisis, I guess, uh, maybe some of the after effects of it. But um, as a whole, a pretty significant decline. This was for, let's see here. November, maybe. Maybe is quarter four. I'm, I'm not sure. But but long story short, uh, pretty significant decline in. Uh, and then you see it also in their factory orders. Uh, and this is uh, people were talking about this probably before the new year back in December about signs of a potential recession in, in Germany's economy. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, the euro it's it's easy to look at it big picture and just say like the euro is doomed eu is, is doomed but but when you look at this economic data and, and just realize you know if 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 this is a precursor to a recession or germany's already in a recession or if they're just going to have to deal with like 0.5% growth and or negative 0.5% you know just moving kind of around 0% stagflation if you will in germany uh, for a while you got to understand that germany is kind of the heart of the eu I mean, there's a couple of countries. Obviously, the UK is leaving, and they're not so much part of it. But but France, Italy, Germany. I mean, those are I think the three biggest economies, right? We can we can Google this so we can all educate ourselves a bit. Biggest EU economies. There you go. Germany, of course, the UK, France, and Italy. We can go to Wikipedia's article for this. Um, Okay, Italy. Uh, okay, this is European, so obviously Russia is not part of the EU. Uh, but then you have Spain, Netherlands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But so this puts in perspective: Germany is is um, fairly large compared to to France. Uh, I guess we should be looking at these numbers over here. 2018 is a little bit more updated. Um, quite a bit larger than France or Italy, and you know a slowdown in in German Germany's economy. Um, it's not good news for the EU, and I think could could signal a much broader recession. Um, and 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 also, this is going to affect a lot of what the ECB's policies will be going forward uh, in terms of of QE. Are, are they going to start up QE again? Are they ever going to raise interest rates? Because it's very difficult for them to say we're going to stop QE, which they just recently did, but we're going to continue to to not do QE, and eventually we're also going to raise interest rates while the largest economy in the EU is contracting or sitting around zero percent or whatever it is um i I mean germany that's maybe the one economy in the eu that is decent in the sense that their their debt levels are not crazy high france italy um they have large economies sure um and their debt to gdp might not be out as as out of control as say like uh, Greece or something like that, but it's still very high. And I don't think Germany deals with that quite. I guess I don't know what Germany's again. We can Google this Germany debt to GDP. 
there you go. Far below France and Italy, right? Um, far more robust, I guess. And and look at that. I've even been able to bring it down, their debt to GDP, at least, where you have France and Italy uh, staying steady or still moving up in, in what's supposed to be a, a pretty good uh, economic environment. And so um, if their their economy starts to falter, that, that puts, I think, Mario Draghi in a difficult position there or whoever the next uh, ECB head is. Um, so something to keep an eye on. The, the other thing I want to talk about a little bit more specific to the United States is shale oil. This is an article. I think it was shared on Zero Hedge, but I just want to bring it up on its original site. That's oilprice.com. Um, new data suggests shocking shale slowdown. It's not all that shocking. It shouldn't be shocking. I mean, if you look at, let's see, WTI price. Bring up the price here for WTI. Um from oilprice.com, great. Uh, it's, it's it had a really poor fourth quarter of 2018. We'll bring up a one-year chart over here on the right side of the page. I mean, look at that. In uh, beginning of October, it was up in the 70s. By the end of December, it was almost reaching the bottom of 40. Now it's moving up slowly. That's, that's about as poor of a quarter as you can expect. That's like a $30 swing in WTI. That's huge. And so is this should this be surprising at all? No, not. It should not be surprising at all. Now, I, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things here. This is basically what they're talking about. This is a survey from the Fed, uh, Dallas branch, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, basically showing that the business activity index, the survey's broadest measure of conditions, facing 11th district energy firms, Remained positive, but barely so, plunging forty from forty three point three in the third quarter to two point three. So anything positive is uh, there's uh, growth, but it's barely positive, especially compared to what it was before um, in, in the third quarter, which again you know coincided with a decent move up in oil, right? I guess if you look at the beginning of the third quarter, but as a whole it was is low, and then maybe moving up some, and, and higher than where it was in quarter two. That's another key in even quarter one. So it moved down. It wasn't a full contraction, I guess. And and maybe that's, I think it would have been a full contraction had the quarter started maybe like here or here and moved out because the price is much, much lower. But the, the other takeaway that they bring here is, is uh, all the way towards the beginning. Uh, in other words, some early data points already suggest that the U.S. shale industry could struggle if WTI remains below $50 per barrel. But the longer WTI stays low, the more likely we will see a broader slowdown. So why why am I talking about oil? Like, why is this important? And, and, and this is not specific. I, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm interested in the oil sector. But I think this has, has, has some broader implications if this prices, if these prices stay low. I mean, this is something I've talked about for a while now, that shale oil is not a sustainable way for, for energy production here in the United States. Certainly, as this article says, maybe below $50. You know, as they add more and more debt to their balance sheet, their, their break even, their all-in cost is even higher because of the, the cost to service that debt. A lot of these firms are already highly, highly indebted that that is, uh, that is extracting this oil. And so... <sighs> This isn't just about the oil. I mean, you got to understand the broader implications of this. Um, the two big ones that come to mind, uh, I'll say three. Okay, first of all, the, the first obvious one, you have a significant decrease in production of oil here in the United States. 
uh, and, and export or domestic production and, and use in the United States, that's going to damage the GDP. I think a lot more than people might expect. But it, it, if it shaves off 0.1%, shaves off half percent, whatever. But it is going to damage the G- GDP if prices remain below 50 and we start to see a contraction quarter one uh, of, of uh, shale oil in in that area and elsewhere. I mean, this is these low oil prices are not helping uh, a lot of other oil production, including uh, Canadian oil production. They're, they're dealing with some of their own transport issues, but okay, there, there's problems with that. So you're going to have a drop in GDP. Number two, that's going to hurt an economy, by the way. That's already, I think, going to struggle to put out a good number in quarter one and quarter four of, of uh, 2018 and 2019. Um, number two, unemployment. You're going to have to, I think, you know, if, if enough of them shut down production. Now, they're not going to shut down production on maybe one or two month dip in oil. But if this sustains below $50, below $55 even, because they were, you know, up until a couple months ago, used to $60 plus oil, $70 plus oil. You're going to see unemployment rise. People are going to be put out of work. And you're going to see, uh, I think that's going to affect the the national unemployment. When you see these good job numbers mount on, on a on a monthly basis or a weekly basis or whatever, eventually you're going to see those numbers not look so great. And part of it's going to be the oil situation, right? Um, number three, and actually I have number four on these, this list, but number three, if you do have a long-term slowdown of shale production, you know, something Steve Sinangelo always talks about is, is the importance of energy for the growth of an economy. And you've seen this throughout time that, that as uh, humans develop better ways to to develop energy use energy whether it's is harnessing hydropower or eventually things like steam power coal uh, and eventually you know fossil fuels like oil not that coal's not one but but oil natural gas something we can use in large quantities you know as we were able to do that at a large to a large and larger extent and also at a a greater efficiency meaning less energy put in to extract you know like you know one barrel uh, of, of oil to extract, you know, 50 barrels or whatever it is, you know, as we could do more and more in that sense, higher efficiency, uh, that generally economies grow. And he also talks about how the shale oil boom, boom was a big part of, you know, when, when the Fed comes out and created a ton of money and they lowered interest rates following the financial crisis, that the oil boom, that massive the increase in production, that was another piece of it as well, that without that, we wouldn't have had the same economic, I guess, uh, recovery if you want to call it a recovery and so if you do have that have a slowdown in the production and there you'd have a slowdown in the economy you'd have a harder time because you're you just don't have that energy component being added to the equation here in the united states number four on this list of of why this is important for people outside of the oil industry is uh debt um i talked about how a lot of these firms are very indebted a lot of them are what you'd considered in 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 junk bond status. I mean, they're highly indebted. They're very volatile. It doesn't mean they've defaulted on their debt yet, but their yield on on their bonds, corporate bonds and whatnot, are going to be very high. It means they're rated as pretty risky compared to other corporations. And eventually, you know, if if prices stay low long enough, you're going to see defaults. You're going to see junk bonds uh, uh, significantly, I think, move up in yields. And in even some of these maybe better rated ones, you're going to see their bonds being shifted to junk bond status. So you're going to have defaults. And you know, if it's large enough, that can spread to the broader economy. That can spread to the broader financial system. And this is, again, this is in a situation where you're already kind of dealing with that. 
aside from the natural resources sector or aside from the energy sector, you're already seeing rising yields on a lot of corporate bonds, especially junk bonds and whatnot, because people are realizing as we get closer to what could be a recession, an economic downturn, the chance of of uh, the the um, chance of the these companies defaulting on their high high debt obligations are are higher. I mean, you remember uh, high debt in a company is generally never a good thing, um, but it's a much worse thing when when you're worrying about a drop in revenue or drop in profits. Um, so what I'm saying here is that if a company comes out of 2009, 2010, and they survive, and they're moving into what's going to be a relatively calm period for another five, six years, and they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet, um, they can maybe weather that. Now, ideally, what they do during that time is that they could grow their company, but they could also pay off that debt and bring down their, their debt load, right? Um, but if that same company is piling up all this debt in 2015, 16, 17, 18, heading into a potential recession in 2019 or 20, they're going to be in a much, much worse position. You do not want to have that debt on your balance sheet at that high levels heading into what could be a major economic downturn um, because, because A, you're going to see your revenues drop probably. You're, you're going to become less profitable. That tends to be the case during recession. Now, it depends on the sector, depends on the company, et cetera. But number two, yields are going to go up. Investors are going to be less likely to buy your debt. And so yields are going to go up and servicing that debt. You know, let's say you have a $100 billion uh, uh, payment um, in terms of debt a company does. They need to, to um, you know, satisfy that type of an obligation in terms of bonds at, say, 5%, right? It's a couple of years old. They'd say they got a 5%. Well, now, you know, their, 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 their own balance sheet or their own uh, statements aren't looking terrible, but but the broader picture moving into a recession, yields are going up and whatnot. Now they might have to roll that over at 6% or 7%. So now the cost of service that has gone up and the odds of them just ultimately defaulting on it has gone up as well. And so that that has implications on the economy that slows things down when you have rising yields. And also there's the threat of a massive you know default, some sort of a contagion where they default and, and all of a sudden because they owed such and such bank or banks more likely a large amount of money. Now all of a sudden those banks are, are out that money and that can create a broader crisis and that can contribute to just a broader uh, 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 defaults, uh, number of defaults in the economy beyond just the oil sector. So uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see what else we have here in the chat. I'll bring you guys back to uh, the other screen. Let's see here. Calderon's talking about holding silver in your possession. Good example, or good, good, good recommendation, I think. Uh, Chris says, in one month, Litecoin went from $22 to $40. Wouldn't it be nice if silver did the same thing? It would be nice if silver did the same thing. Um, but... It'd also be nice if if those gains were, I mean, I think sustainable for Litecoin, if those gains were, were based on fundamentals. Like from, from an investment perspective, from a speculation speculation perspective, great. But like what are fun what what are the fundamentals for Litecoin? Like can A, can you quantify the fundamentals? Probably not. But B, um, if there are fundamentals, like what do they look like in terms of what is Litecoin like what what's the case? What's the buying, what's the case to buy Litecoin? because it's going to go up in price. I mean, that's, 
why is it going to go up in price then? What's the case? For, do you see what I'm saying here? Is it, is it going to be used in the real world? It's going to be used in commerce. It's going to be used as what it's called a, a crypto currency. Currencies have to be used. They, can, they can't just be speculative assets, right? Um, and so what's the case to own it right now? I think that's the case for just about every crypto out there. There's not a strong case for it to go up in value other than saying it's going to go up. In, it's kind of a, a, a circular argument a lot of times. Um, let's see here. Yankee says, question, Matt, if or when the dollar collapses, what would be the foreign impact? Huge boon to other currencies. Will the loss of dollar reserve status trigger contagion? That's a great example or great example. Great question. Um, and that's something I've heard Peter Schiff talk about. He talks about how emerging markets are going to benefit a ton from that, a ton from the drop in the dollar. A full-blown collapse, maybe, I don't know if he, he doesn't usually talk about in full-blown collapse terms, like it's just hyperinflationary event. But he's talked about like the DXY, where it is right now uh, in the high 90s, mid to high 90s, drop into 70, 60, 50. Okay. What does that mean for emerging markets? Well, on the surface, that would be really good for them. You know, we're talking about debt. Um, and a lot of those emerging markets have a lot of debt in U.S. currency in dollars or, or euros for, for some countries like Turkey. And so, I mean, if, if you have the dollar drop in 10%, 20%, 30%, well, that's your debt load has effectively been lightened by 10, 20%, now 30%. Now the, the risk there is that, you know, a lot of these countries might depend on the United States as, as a buyer of their goods, right? Whether we're talking about China, whether we're talking about some Southeast Asian countries, I mean, that, that's a that's a problem as well. So it's hard to say. I mean, you're right. There are both extremes. Um, and so I, I, I wish I could answer that well. I don't think it's quite as easy as saying the dollar goes down and those countries do well. But I also don't think it's as easy as saying that there's going to be a contagion, that because, as is so often the case, I think the truth is going to be somewhere in between. And I think that the value, I, I would say that, you know, if if somebody's going to invest around the world, you know, I've, I think ideally, we we don't know when the dollar is going to drop significantly. I think a lot of people were betting on a major dollar drop in 2018. It didn't do that. It strengthened a lot of emerging market currency. A lot of emerging market uh, investors got burned by that. Um, we don't know exactly when if 2019 is going to be the year that it drops a ton. And if it doesn't, you're you're playing a risky game with a lot of those countries. Um, ideally, you'd find a country that would benefit from that, um, but also maybe doesn't carry a massive debt load or super risky, something like Argentina, Turkey, uh, et cetera. Um, let's see here. It's it's hard to say, though. Uh, I, I guess I, I'd have to do more, more research on that. Uh, let's see here. There's an argument there about fiat currency. What's fiat? What's not? I don't know. I, I guess I don't know if you consider cryptos fiat because technically they're not issued by a government. But come on, very similar. Um, again, what are the fundamentals? Sorry, I'm just going through a chat here. I'm not just zoning out. Um, Philosopher B says platinum is where it's at. Uh, yeah, <laughs> platinum is something I've been watching for a while. Let's see what the price is right now. Um, 
it's it's kind of been languishing there for a while in what the eight hundreds, seven hundreds. But eventually, I think it's going to move up. Let's see here, because um, it's so low. Let's see here. Yeah, so it was back in probably August, maybe even back in July or or I don't know, somewhere in that time period where I was talking about how low it is. And it and it was in the 700s. It actually dropped into the high 700s. Now it's since moved up to what over 800 again. Um, but I agree that that as far as speculative for for precious metals, I think that has a lot of room to run up. You know, a reminder: it's it's all time high was you know back in what 2008, 2007, 2008. It looks like over two thousand dollars, and so. I think that does have a lot of move up and, and, you know, you're looking at how high palladium is right now. You know, I think we can see a similar story for platinum eventually in the future. Let's see here. What else we have in the chat? Chris is continuing to talk about Litecoin, but it also hasn't talked at all about fundamentals. So, Again, if you're just going to invest in something because it goes up, like, great, okay, that's a speculative investment for you, okay? But but when you're using an argument for why somebody should buy Litecoin, the, the argument should not be because it's going to go up in price. you got to say, why is it going to go up in price? And if your argument for why it's going to go up in price is because other people are going to be talking about it's going to go up in price and thus buy it and drop up, drop up the price, I mean, that's that's not sustainable. That's not, again, it's great if you're just speculating, but th- that's not sustainable for cryptos. Right, you saw a thousand and one channels, YouTube channels out there talking about speculative trading in cryptos. Well, where are cryptos today? They dropped a ton in price, and their real world use. If anything, that rally and dump in cryptos that didn't help the crypto market. What that told big institutions, what that told average investors, is that they are speculative assets, that they're highly volatile, and that they need to. uh, work things out if, if they're ever going to actually serve that role as a quote unquote currency, right? It, it, it's ridiculous that they, people call them cryptocurrencies and yet in the same breath call them massive, you know, speculative investments. Like, no, you need some sort of a price stability in, an, in a currency, right? You, you can't have a currency that rises by 200% and drops by 100% the next month, right? That's just not sustainable, right? If I asked you, uh, you know, today, Chris, do you, do you, would it be okay if I paid you in Litecoin? Right. And, and you might say, okay, that's fine. You know, like what's, what's my rate? Like, are you paying me $10 an hour? And I said, no, I'm going to pay you uh, a quarter of a Litecoin an hour. And it's going to be fixed in Litecoin. We're not going to worry about dollars. We're just going to fix it in Litecoin. Well, then your entire salary is dependent on Litecoin going up or down. Right. If it goes up, great. I owe you a lot more money than maybe you, you know, as a, a deserve compared to just dollar terms. But if it goes down, like where are you can be out there, it's just not sustainable. And unless uh, somehow they find some sort of price stability. Let's see here. Define fundamentals. Crypto's market share is tiny. That's not a fundamental. Um, so define fundamentals for, for cryptos. Okay, so real world use, that would be, can you, A, can you quantify it? Again, that's a question for a lot at least. But even if you can, how much are they being used for what their stated purpose is? And that's currency versus 
people buying it on exchanges and then eventually selling on exchanges, holding in their Coinbase and then selling it on Coinbase, moving it to their wallets and then selling it out of their wallets. I mean, how often does that happen? How often is it actually used in real world use? I would guess that today for something like Litecoin, Bitcoin, almost across the board, unless some of these currencies are maybe building some sort of black market status, I would guess less than 1% of their use is real, real world. Okay, that, now that, that wasn't the case maybe back in 2017, end of 2017. You know, when Bitcoin is moving up, all these cryptos are moving up, it might have been higher than 1%. But part of that reason was that they bought it low and all of a sudden they had a ton and they wanted to buy stuff, whether it was to avoid uh, maybe tax, uh, capital gain taxes. Maybe they just had a ton in their wallet. They didn't want to convert to cash uh, or into their bank account, whatever. And they bought stuff with it. But today, okay, that would be a fundamental. A, can you quantify it? And B, what is it? I'm going to guess it's less than 1% if we could quantify it. Okay. Um, Number two, uh, what is the price stability? Because again, if 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 the long-term use case, the long-term case for cryptocurrencies being such a great asset on over the next five years, 10 years, et cetera, is because eventually they're going to replace traditional fiat. Then, okay, A, they need use, which we already covered, and B, they need price stability if they're ever going to be used. And yet in the same breath, you're talking about crypto, uh, Litecoin moving from 22 to, to, to 40. I mean, it's just not... It's a speculative investment. That's a mania. It's just not. Uh, and again, crypto market share is tiny. That's not a fundamental. That's just, and, and that's very relative as well. Like, sure, you can compare that to, to stock markets. You can compare that to treasury markets, but but you got to understand. You can compare it to precious metals. Okay, precious metals. When you look at the market share, the size of the market of, of precious metals, you know, for, for silver, we're talking uh, uh, 15 billion for gold. Uh, we're, we're talking, I don't know, I guess I don't know the exact size of gold, a fair amount larger. Okay, you're talking about a real asset as real world uses, et cetera. You're talking about stocks. You're talking about real companies that make real profits and have real dividends. They have real fundamentals. See, that word keeps coming up. Bonds. Now, I'm not a huge fan of bonds, but okay. But you have a country that is paying out a real yield. Now, I get it. It's fiat. It's not... Great, just like companies are paying out a dividend in fiat, but they're paying out a real yield on their debt. Okay. Now, what are the fundamentals of a country? That's a great example. You know, great, great question as well. You know, what's their uh, future um, debt load going to look like? What's their what's their uh, current debt look like? Um, what's going to happen if yields go up significantly? What are the uh, et cetera, et cetera? But you're comparing a market of of random speculative assets that don't have real world uses to assets that sure I get it paper assets many of them are but they have some basis in reality they have some basis and this isn't this isn't coming from a guy that's totally anti-crypto but you got to understand that cryptos just came off maybe the worst 12 months they've had right as I said that big move up and a huge move down for cryptos that that ingrains in people's mind that they're speculative assets. They're not ever going to have any sort of price stability, no real use. And that's unfortunate. Now, and it also might unfortunately ingrain in some mind, in some people's mind that, that it's only going to be some sort of a controlled crypto that is going to fill that role. And that's not something I want either, right? Um, let's see here. Uh, he says accepted Litecoin as payment for. Great. You're part of the 1%. 
they're being used more and more every single day. That's the only metric we know for sure. But are they? Like, hey, do you know that metric? Like, is it is it volume on exchanges? Because that's exchanges, right? And if it's from number of transactions, how many of those transactions are in exchanges versus you know peer to peer? Okay. Price stability will only come if the market share increases. Um, the market share increased in 2017. And you had the exact opposite of price stability. Crypto is tiny, and that's why the price volatility is huge. I, I, I just don't see that as a as a valid argument. I mean, what's so so? Let me get this straight. Like, if if Litecoin was at five hundred dollars, it would have more more price stability. If Bitcoin was at fifty thousand, it would have more price stability. Uh no. Like what, again, what's its real world use? I guess you can make a case that over the next 10, 20, 30 years that maybe those assets will, will gain a real world use, right? Actually be used as a currency as they are called, but otherwise I just don't see it happening. Um, let's see here. We'll move on from cryptos. Uh, Yankee's right. Blockchain is here to stay, and they, they will have some sort of crypto-like currency. But um, this is coming from a guy who, I, me, I like blockchain. I, I think it has a lot of potential and whatnot. But, uh, yeah. Why are blue chips more stable in price than penny stocks? Uh, because they have a stable profit, more or less. Um, they have already invested in all the capital expenses that they need to grow a, a major company. They have a large amount of, of I guess, connections. They have a, both to, to consumers as well as other companies. Um, they have a market share that they've already carved out, uh, whereas penny stocks oftentimes are speculative. They oftentimes have a high amount of debt compared to their profit, to their revenue. They oftentimes have questionable management. They oftentimes... Um, don't have profits. They don't have any revenue. It's just any valuation is based on future ones. Um, so crypto is, crypto is 10 years old. You're right. It is 10 years old. Um, anyways, uh, I got to head out. I hate to end this on a negative note. This is not me trying to be anti-crypto or anything, but kind of. I mean, um, oh, sorry, Yankee, real quick. I'll answer your question. Matt, any thought on yet another government shutdown per my earlier comment? I didn't, I didn't see it, um, so I apologize. Oh, here we go. Matt, saw a YouTube video on speculation that Trump is keeping the government shut down, going to create a national crisis where he can declare a state of emergency and make sweeping changes. So he's calling it, he's likely going to create a, a declare a state of emergency tonight, it sounds like, to, to move forward with the wall, which I'm just saying, if Obama did something like that, People would be up in arms about that. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Um, who knows what else he's he's going to use that uh, for, uh, et cetera. Um, as for the shutdown, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the shutdown, how much longer it continues or or if uh, – uh, I not hear that. Um, yeah, no, he's he's got a big address tonight, actually regard Yankee. He got a big address tonight, uh, primetime talking about people I think are expecting, uh, um, some sort of a, uh, 
emergency declaration in order to to move forward with the wall. And, you know, from there, who knows where we go, if the shutdown continues or not. But anyways, I do have to go. i got to get going. Um, actually, I have a uh, doctor's appointment for my two-year-old this morning. So um, thanks again for all you guys tuning in. I got, sorry for, for uh, leaving on a bit of a negative note. But uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this live stream today. And I hope you guys will be looking forward to another one, uh, maybe Friday, probably next week. I'm, oh, maybe not next week. I don't know. We'll see. But as always, you know, tune into to my regular videos, uh, you know, five, six of them a week, whatever it is. Um, as always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this live stream, listening to it if you're over on podcast format. And God bless.